Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and, and friends. I hope that you all are doing well. Again, it is, a, it is an absolute privilege to preach to you all um, this morning. If you have your, your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll begin reading uh, at, at, verse, at verse 4. This is the first time that I'm using my contacts this morning. Um, well, not the first time wearing them, but the first time doing this, wearing my contacts this morning. So I'm hoping that I will still be able to see and uh, be able to function. So far, so far, uh, so, so good. Um, <clears throat> we're going to continue this morning as we look to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, in what is called the second word, or as we're, we normally call it, the second commandment, and the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, or also known as the Decalogue, the Ten Words. And Lord willing, we're going to dedicate, um, if you haven't figured this out, we're going to dedicate a week per commandment or per word. And you might remember last week we covered the, the first word or the first commandment, and that was, you shall have no other gods before me, which sets of first importance the, the standard, in a sense, the foundation in which these commandments are going to be based upon. Uh, it is the foundational word uh, for all the other ones to come. And that the most basic theological truth is right there in that first commandment, right? So step one, square one, right? The elementary starting place of Christianity is what is set forth right here, and that is without a doubt the existence of God, and that this God is the one and only true living God. And if he does exist, then he demands our ex worship exclusively. And the first commandment is, is not insisting upon the existence of other gods, saying that there should be no other gods before me, but actually it's dismantling the notion or the thought of there being any other gods at all. But there is the worship of this God, the one and only true God. And as we talked about last week, that just because there is still, there is only one and only true God, that doesn't mean that there is not other quote-unquote gods that we go after. Baal may not be real, he is fake, he is not true, it's not real. Baalism very much is, and the worship of Baal very much, very much is. And so the worship of false gods exists, and the human heart will always go after those false gods. And so the first command explicitly forbidding us from putting anything in the place of God that he rightfully claims as his. And so now as we look at the second word, it also pertains as well to worship, but also love. The first command, commandment answers the question, who do we worship? Who are we to worship and adore? That question is answered, God. And there to be no other gods before him. Well, the second command answers another question. How do we worship? Does God, if we have no other gods before him, does he care how we worship him? Do we have the freedom, the creative license to shape and to fashion how we worship, design, or picture God? How do we worship God? God. Well, let's look to this commandment, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall, make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who 
love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. You know, one of the most wonderful things about being a child is having an imagination. Maybe you can remember when you were a child and what kind of imagination you had. The kind of games that you played with your friends or your brothers or sisters, the kind of worlds that you would come up with in your, in your mind, the kind of distant lands would come up, the thrilling adventures you would have with the very few toys that you might have had or the costumes that you had, might have had, the kind of imagination that you had. As parents, you learn to enjoy watching your own children playing when they're using their imagination. One of my favorite ways when I was a kid using my imagination was when I was playing with my little army men. You know, the little cheap army men you would see at the grocery store that were used to be 50 cents for a pack or $1.50 for a pack, and you get a couple guys with some bazookas and a dude throwing a grenade, and you had the commander with his binoculars and a couple riflemen. And then sometimes it would include a little tank. I loved playing with those little things. I loved setting up little bases with my army men. And soon they had different colors. Army men do get green ones, and sometimes there was gray ones or blue ones. And you'd set up little bases, and you'd set up little battlefields with trenches and pillboxes and tanks. We would play inside the house. We would play outside of the house. We were having quite a bit of fun. Having an imagination to play that kind of, those kind of games or that kind of, have that kind of fun would keep us content for hours upon hours. But like anything else, an imagination is certainly healthy, but also having an imagination could take us into the wrong, take us into a wrong direction. So for example, if I was at school and all I was thinking about was setting up a new army base because my dad had a load of dirt brought in and all I can think of was this would be Mount Sarabachi and I would have an amazing battle scene in this thing and all I can think about was this and here's this teacher blabbing on about math and who else knows what and I'm thinking about this and all of a sudden if I'm asked a question or trying to figure out what my homework is, I'm going to be in quite a bit of trouble. Anytime that we try to bring our imaginary world into the real world, we will face some problems. And the reason why is because we live in a real world. And in that real world, we have real relationships. We've been given an imagination. And imagination is good. Creativity is good. God gave us these these things to be expressed. But again, the problem is, is when we import it into places and areas where we should not. Some wish to think that we can, quote unquote, imagine God the way that we want. Not what we think about God, right? I think that, that's the, the greatest question that, that A.W. Tozer said. That's the greatest question that, you can ask, that oneself can ask themselves is what do they think about God, but rather it's what people want to do is they want to imagine God. They want to come up in their own, with, in their own minds, their own form and shapes to God. We see that throughout popular culture where culture has shaped in their own minds certain caricatures of God and Jesus and such. The real question we really should be asking ourselves, should we even attempt to imagine God? Are we even capable of, of doing so? Well, simply put, the answer is no. And the reason is why, why is, is because we are, as creatures, we are so limited. We are so finite. We are so weak. We are, we are sinful in our very natures at every point. And God is not. 
And so for sinful, weak, limited, finite creatures to even attempt to grasp, to imagine God in our own ways and thoughts are far beyond our grasp. Whatever we could come up with, whatever it may be, if this is who God is and this is who we are, whatever we come up with then, brothers and sisters and friends, we could never trust. Because God, in the way that we will fashion him, will always be a scaled-down version of him. I love theology. I'm thankful for great theological works that I have read and theologians that I have read and studied, and I praise God for them and for the faithful teachers who wrote such great works, and I think they're helpful, and we should read them and we should study them. They're helpful to you as much as they are helpful to me, but though, the very, though, though they are very biblical, at least the ones that I try to read myself, is though they are very biblical, they still, in regards to grasping the exhaustive character and nature of God, still fall woefully short of truly understanding and explaining and defining the person and character of God. And any good theologian, looking at their own work, would tell you that. Of course, they didn't just make stuff up about God. They were not using their imaginations, their systematic approach to the Scripture or, or biblical theology is simply that. It's Bible. But, but anything from the mind of man will always fall short, woefully short, to the perfections of God. And yet, still today, one of the greatest temptations of all mankind and throughout the ages has been that by our own imaginations, we attempt to picture God in the ways that we can quote-unquote relate to. And I think this is an effect from the original sin of the fall. The original sin of the fall falls down to this, is that we want to be like God. And so we create images or thoughts of God that are on our own level. And this is where the second commandment comes in and forbids us and even warns us, with a pro even a promise at the end though, but it warns us from from making any images, carved images in particular, making any images of God or assigning anything man has made or anything that is a part of creation as, as the Lord God and then worshiping it. And now why is this commandment important to us today? Why are we spending time on this for us today? Well, let me give you a few reasons. First, God has spoken. He has spoken to us and he has told us the answer to that great question of how are we to worship him? Or in this case, how you are not to worship him. He gets to, he gets to set the terms of how we worship and how he will be worshipped. And he sets the terms because he is God. Second, the spirit of our age, yes, is a secular humanism and atheism. And that's growing all around us. And we, we learned last week that, that, uh, that the first commandment actually answers that question, right? Answers that question for us. But increasingly, more and more is this quote-unquote church that is detaching itself from, from biblical truth and in doing so, is encouraging what the second commandment forbids. This kind of idolatry of shaping and fashioning God in their own likeness and desires. They say things like, we can think about God however we want to think about God and worship God however we want to worship God because we have freedom to do so. Well, granted, we certainly have freedom, but our freedom is constrained to the freedom of obedience in the Scripture. 
They say things like, I don't believe God is like that. Meaning he's not like the way he says that he's in the scripture. So again, using our imaginations, they use their imaginations. And this has led churches and denominations into the deep, tragic sin of idolatry. And that has led to outright apostasy. Right now, it is uh, quite rampant in mainline Protestant denominations and quote-unquote churches. And third reason why we need to study this and look at this commandment is because like the first commandment, this is about love. How we worship God shows love. Because if we are being obedient to him and what he has said and how we are to worship him, or i.e. Not, not how we're supposed to worship him, then it shows our loyalty to him. The Lord God doesn't want his people to misrepresent him. As much as we do not want to be misrepresented, how much more does the Lord not want to be misrepresented? Brothers and sisters, we do not want to think about God incorrectly, and nor should we think that we can create in our own thoughts and imaginations how to worship God. And so I have three points that I believe that this second word, second commandment, is showing us. And the first is this. The word here is more than just no carved images or graven images but it is about how the Lord wants us to perceive him and come to understand him and worship him and love him. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water and the earth. And so here is setting for us the answer to that question, how do we worship and love God? Now, the the wording has been uh, confusing, particularly in in some uh, translations. The King James Version makes it actually sound like this commandment is telling us that that as Christians, we should not participate in anything uh, of, of artistic pursuits. We shouldn't be painting any landscapes. We shouldn't be painting any animals or sculpting fish or, or, or anything. So not just images of God, but in images of, of anything. And there have been some forms of Judaism who have taken up that viewpoint that believes this, as well as some Islam, as well, Islamic traditions that have picked this up and said that there should be no art at all involved because that would be forming some kind of uh, idol or false worship, but that's not a good translation of, of this earth because of accurate exegesis. This actually is not talking about art or the representations of a creative world, and the reason why we know this is, number one, when it's repeated in Deuteronomy, uh, I believe, chapter 8, it, it, it words it a little bit better where we can understand it a little bit better, as well as the translation you see here in ESV, is, is quite helpful, but as well, we know God is going to command his people to do what? To make things, to make things artistically, to shape and fashion little cherubims and angels to go on the mercy seat and things like that and on the Ark of the, the, Ark of the Covenant, right? So God is going to use art as a way or a means to worship him, but there is a limitation to that. And that is this, right? That this command is about the use or images or idols as mediators of the presence or revelation of God to man or the mediation of the worship of God. The first command is about not having any other gods before him, right? Which includes the worship of false idols. But this is distinctly about the worship of God himself, Yahweh. That in, any, that in a false way, that in that any false way you could use representations of God would be a false way to worship Him. Remember the scene of Exodus 20. 
which actually is answered in 19, that God has come. God has come down to them on this mountain, Mount Horeb. He descended upon the mountain, and on the mountain there was thunder and lightning and earthquakes. You remember that? And Moses is down with the people, and then God spoke to them. It's one of the only times in Scripture that God speaks to His corporate people with His voice. He speaks to the people. And of all the shocking and terrifying things that they experienced that day, what they experienced was actually hearing God Himself, but they were not seeing God Himself. They were not seeing God Himself, only the, the signs of His presence. And why? Well, frankly, first, the very presence of God would kill them because He is holy and they are not. And the presence of God, the holiness of God, would kill this sinful people. So God is being merciful by, by, by hiding Himself, in a sense, from them, but His very presence is still there, but clothed in the cloud. But second... Because his people will not have any physical representations of this true God, because God himself cannot be represented by anything that we can imagine or by anything in creation. And I'll give you a biblical example of this. In 2 Kings, there were, there were very few kings in, in the line of succession of kings after, after David and Solomon. But one of the good kings, or maybe decent kings, is this guy named Jehu. And what differentiated him from others and the other wicked kings is that, that Jehu, when he took the throne, he sought it as his role to eliminate all of the, the, the Baal worship from Israel, all, this, all the fake, false, pagan worship that was taking place within Israel and by God's people. And the way he, he, he made sure to do that was first he had, uh, he had Queen Jezebel put to death. Start number one. Start with that wicked person. Done. And then he killed and he ran out all the priests of Baal from the land. He had them killed and ran out. And it was a good thing. Here was a king that was finally taking seriously the law of God. And particularly this first commandment that there will be no other gods before him and so he's leading his people by the law but jehu neglected the second command the second word of god because as the scripture tells us second kings chapter 10 verse 20 29 that he didn't turn away from the sins of jeroboam which was the worship of golden calves. It's up on the screen, you can see that. Of course, you might know where that came from. The image that Israel created in verse or in Exodus 32. They created the image of the golden calves, of a golden calf to do what? Not to come up with their very own God, but to worship Yahweh. This is the imagination of Israel. God has done all of this to save us. Take us out of Egypt and bring us here. He gave us his law. He gave us his word. You know what that means? That means he must be a cow. That's the imagination of man. So let's make a golden calf and let's call it Yahweh and worship him as Yahweh and worship him as the way we see fit. And I don't know if you know it or not, but we're going to eventually get there, 2028, Exodus 32, that it just doesn't go well for them, breaking the commandment of God. It sounds so ridiculous to us to come up with a cow to worship. But they wanted something. The heart of man wants something that they could, 
if they could see straight, <laughs> unlike me, could visualize and worship. And the reason why we want something we could visualize and something that we can see and something that we can touch and feel is that if God was like that, then that is a God that, brothers and sisters, you and I can control. We can put him behind us. We can put him before us. We can put him in our purses and our backpacks and our knapsacks. We can store him in the back of our trucks and our trailers. We can put him where we want. And that is why this commandment strictly forbids any of that. So the question, uh, um, well, a, a question that the people might have then is why? Why, why is God constraining us to, to th this kind of worship, not having any kind of images or the imagination to create God in the ways that we want? Why is God constraining us? I mean, I mean if he's sovereign, if he's all-powerful and all-loving, and he is the, 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 all the great creator, right? He is the creative creator, and he has created us to be creative and express things and be expressive and stuff like that, then why wouldn't he want us to use our imaginations to be artistic and to be aesthetically pleasing and to craft magnificent pieces of art to represent him in worship of him? Wouldn't he be like a proud parent who gets that picture drawn by their children of them? And understand, oh, sweet darling, as virtuous and as spiritual as that may sound. What we can draw up again in our, in our imaginations will never measure up. John Calvin said in the Institutes, he said, let this be our wisdom to acquiesce in what God has chosen to decree in this matter, meaning how we worship. That if people should think that zeal for religion is sufficient. They have not realized that true religion ought to be conformed to God's will as a universal rule. Which means, who cares what you can come, can come up with? Who cares how creative it is, how, how much you can dream it up, how much you can imagine about God and how you would like God to be, no matter how zealous or passionate or as spiritual as you, it may sound, it will never measure up to the will of God. At Mount Sinai, God revealed himself to his people. And yes, he, his presence was there, and he was doing the, 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 the thunders and the lightnings and the earthquakes. But more importantly, God revealed himself not for them to see God, but he revealed himself through his word. God spoke. And what should dominate our thoughts about God is not what we can con conceive through our own desires or emotions or culture or imagination, but what we conceive of God, brothers and sisters, is to be what we're, is because we have been fixated on his word. If you can picture God, if you can draw God, if you can sculpt God, if you can fashion God, imagine God, carve God, and carve an image of God according to your own thoughts, as noble, zealous, spiritual, as virtuous as it may sound, then your God is dependent on you and your opinions. And again, this is why it is so insidious that liberal Christianity has done this. They have exchanged the inerrant word of God, the revelation of God, and they have exchanged it with the theology that is based upon their own thought of themselves, their own imaginations. And people are duped by it. Because to them, that sounds great. That sounds loving. That sounds spiritual. And it tickles the heart's and it tickles the flesh, and it sounds good. It sounds good that God is like me.
And so to them, God has become emasculated. You can't call God Father anymore. You have to call Him Mother. And no offense to mothers. We love you, mothers. But God is not Mother. He is Father. This is why we have emasculated culture so much. Trying to treat everybody androgynous. This is why to them God is all loving and tolerant to every lifestyle and on and on. They are creating an image of God to worship by their own imaginations according to their own created values and imaginations. And the grossest form of narcissism and heresy is to fashion God into our own sinful, wicked likeness. And by God demanding that you only conceive and worship Him, not in the ways that you want, not visually, then means that there's only one other alternative in which we are to conceive and worship God, and that is as He has said Himself to be in His Word. We live in a culture that is visually stimulated everywhere and from everything, every form and fashion. It's safe to say that we are addicted to such stimulation. Pictures and videos can be accessed 24-7 by, by anyone at any time just with this little device that's in your pocket right now. You can find anything. If you can think of it, you can go right to YouTube and you can find that clip, you can find that video literally within seconds. Yes, it is, it's truly amazing, but it is also very shocking and even scary. And so I find it very countercultural today, countercultural to human nature, that God has not revealed himself in a picture, but God has revealed himself to us by his word. Have you ever visited St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Savannah? It's a beautiful place. You should go. I mean, honestly, you should go. You should see it. But if you've ever been there, you'll notice that there are some massive, massive differences between that building and, and our building. It's big. Yeah, it's laughable. I know, I get it. It's laughable if you've been there. It's way bigger. It's extravagant is, is, is not the right words to say, to describe it. It, it is extraordinary. It is extravagantly decorated with, with Christian art. The beautiful stained glass windows and tapestries that, that fill it from, from one end of it to the other. Now, there are, of course, massive differences between us and the, our building and their building, but there is, a, there is a larger difference that I would like to tell you, and that is at the altar of the cathedral, there is a crucifix with Jesus hanging on it. And now we would have major theological problems with such an image, such as Jesus is resurrected from the cross. Hello. We would have massive issues with that. But the reason why you do not find images like that here and around here is because the cross and the crucifixion of Christ is not something that we need to be visual. And the reason is, is because the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ is in our message. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected for the salvation of sinners. Not only is it not commanded, but they're unnecessary for us visually to have them because, brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. And the centerpiece of our church, the centerpiece of the church of Jesus Christ, is not an image. It is not an icon. The centerpiece of our building, as you can see here, is the pulpit. Not to lift me up, but it is a symbol of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the image, so no image of God is necessary. Why? Because we have the Word of God. It's why we say and we sing sola scriptura, by God's Word alone, and we need nothing else. And the second point this morning comes from the very next verses, and that is the Lord God is jealous for His name. Verse 5. You should not bow down to them or serve them. And we'll stop there for just a moment, right? So for here, again, he's kind of telling us how to worship, right? How to worship is you don't worship them. You don't serve them. You worship according to my words and how I've revealed myself. Our worship is set by his words. Attempting to worship the Lord by any other means is sinful. God has told us how we are to worship. Outside of what scripture teaches us is idolatry. And so this is very important for us to remember because what we do as a church and in the worship as the church with the centerpiece of God's word is why we read the Bible, why we pray the Bible, why we sing the Bible, why we confess the Bible, why we preach and proclaim the Bible. That's important for us to mention, but look back at verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here is the reason why the Lord does not want us to create our own images and worship Him the way that we want, because our Lord and our God is a jealous God. And I know that word jealous can bring up a whole host of problems for us, especially if we do not know how it's being used here. Because jealousy to us, and majority of the time, 90-something percent of the time, it's always sinful. Most forms of jealousy is sinful, and therefore when we think about jealousy, or when we think about the temptation to be jealous, or we think about the how that might well up in us to be jealous of someone else, we, we must be careful, and we must put that sin to death. Right? We understand from Scripture the jealousy of Joseph's, brother, Joseph's brothers in Genesis. Right? Clearly sinful jealousy that led them to sell him into slavery, almost kill him. And our jealousy can be just as sinful when it's linked with our sinful desires to covet something that is forbidden to us or that's not ours. And of course we know that to be, that's the 10th commandment, that you, you shall not covet. But this is describing God. And God is not sinful. God does not have sinful desires, nor does the Lord covet what is not His. And why? Because God owns everything. God can't covet. There's nothing upon, though it's that great um, uh, quote by Abraham Kuyper, there's nothing in this whole universe and world that the sovereign Lord does not look over and says, mine, if you say it, you're in trouble. But if God says it, that makes sense, because he's God. He can say it, because he, he created it. His jealousy, then, is not connected with sin, but his jealousy is connected with his holiness. And when we, when we violate his holiness by going after stupid images and imagination things of God, then God is jealous for his holiness. You understand that there? In, in a positive way, it's this. We can say it like this, that he is zealous with a burning passion of his love. He is zealous for a burning passion of his love. Holy jealousy guards someone's rightful passions. And an obvious example of this is, is the love between a husband and a wife. No husband who truly loves his wife could possibly endure seeing his wife in the arms of another man. He would intensely be jealous. And none of us could fault him for that jealousy. The Lord God feels 
and knows that jealousy even more when his people go and worship something that is false. And even worse, something that is false and calling it God. And I want you to see then that God's jealousy in his total commitment to his holiness, we get this severe warning. Visiting the iniquity, sin, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Again, could be a problematic verse if you do not understand what we're talking about here. And the reason why it's a problematic verse, people don't understand jealousy and understand what God is saying here, is because they forget or we can forget the full nature of God. I heard this quote the other day. That all heresy is this. All heresy is taking one truth, but forgetting all the rest. And the intense jealousy of God is why he will judge those who break this command of worship. The intense jealousy of God and the holiness of God is why he will judge those who break this commandment of worship. A judgment that, that not only punishes the father, who presumably is the one who's committing this sin, but also the generations to come, because the father is leading his family in this idolatry. And so this guilt, as you can see, is being passed down. Now we can stop right there, and let's, let's make sure we answer the question about personal responsibility. Does this deny personal responsibility? Absolutely not. We are all, each and every one of us, held accountable for our own sin. The Lord never condemns or judges the innocent, but only the guilty. Jesus was sinless and innocent, but he took upon himself our sin. But these generations, to the third and fourth generation are sinful because of the previous generation. And they are not innocent because it says, because they are those who hate me. They hate me. And they show their hatred for God by a complete disregard of what God has said this is how you should worship me. But, but praise God. We can just kind of stop right there. Just praise God. These generations are not endless. You see, it's to the third and fourth generation. Some of you this morning, you are a living testimony of the example of how the Lord God stopped that sinful generation in your family. And he stopped it in its tracks. And so when we read verse 6, we delight in that glorious promise. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Another translation of that word thousands could also be to the thousandth generation. Even more powerful than the warning is this, this delight of the thousands. How we worship the Lord, how we worship him according to his word is, a quite, is quite the serious thing, isn't it? And we must be careful. We must be careful as fathers to lead our families to worship the Lord according to the word. Not according to our culture, but not according to our imaginations, but according to the word of God. And to faithfully proclaim and live out the steadfast love of God that he has so richly bestowed upon you. The third point I want to make this morning is this, is, is how is God to be perceived by us then? How are we to worship them, him? How do we guard our hearts and our minds from breaking this commandment? And the answer is quite simple because the problem is fundamentally simple. It goes back to creation and the fall. 
It goes back to the creation of the fall, where our image has been marred by sin. And the answer then is our image that has been marred by sin needs to be remade and renewed and restored into the image that God has created us to be. As the church, we understand that the good news of the gospel is that the Lord God has not left us in such a marred state, has he? He hasn't left us in such a fallen state. Yes, we are still living in that distorted image, but we understand by the work of the gospel and the faithfulness of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the preaching of his word that he is sanctifying us and he is restoring that. And ultimately, when he comes back, we will be made new and weights of him. And God has sent his son to be our atoning sacrifice for our justification and for our sanctification so that ultimately we would reflect his image once more. And the reason why is because we were created to reflect his glory. Sin has distorted distorted and marred that, but in Christ he's correcting and renewing what sin has broken. So think about this, think about that for just a second. We should not make visual images of God because he has intended that we not make images of him, but we should image him. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, love this verse, to be conformed to what? To the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, our image that was broken by the fall and by sin is being conformed into the image of Christ. We call this sanctification. And so it's not the, the worship of the image of man, but we are worshiping the image of whom we reflect, and that is the Son, the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 again. Let's look to Hebrews chapter 1. There's something that's very helpful. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and by the prophets, right? So here's the, the Word of God. God has showed us what we, how we are to worship from his word, right? But in these days, he has spoken again to us by his son, which means by the Lord God, he has chosen for us to know and to worship him through his word, which is now revealed to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also the created world. He is the radiance of, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, his power. After making a purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that in his nature is the exact imprint of God. Doesn't that sound like something we were talking about this morning? It's, doesn't that sound familiar? Well, let me help you if you don't understand. Don't get Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of a Christian. So do you hear that? Do we need to create images of worship? Do we need to use our imagination to rethink or reimagine God? To help make him more relatable to us? And the answer of that is, no. no. The image that God has sent to us is his son, who happens to be the Logos Tutheu, the word of God. Everyone's just mind blown by that. Am I the only one? I mean, there's like no amens here. Amen. How magnificent is that? If you want to worship God, then worship Jesus. The only way that you can come in true worship of Jesus, then, is again, come to his word. Come to his word. Not by your own thoughts. Not by your own images of him, 
the second commandment, the second word still applies here to Christ. But come by his word, which is Christ just going out like seeds to the world that need to be sown. Not images of Jesus, not 60 frames per second in 1080p or 4K, Jesus, but the Word of God, Jesus. Come and worship Christ. Come and worship Him. He is the image of God, the exact imprint of the radiance of the glory of God. I don't care what Hollywood can do. They never can replicate the exact imprint and radiance of the glory of God as He is revealed in the Word of God as the Holy Spirit indwells within each and every one of us and illuminates that in our hearts. Can't even come close. The object and center of our worship is Christ, not a picture of Christ. Not a video series of Christ. Not a dramatization of Jesus. But the Jesus of the Scriptures. Do not replace it. Do not put it in its place. Don't break that commandment because it looks good and feels good. Isn't that the, isn't that the nature of all sin? But run to Christ in the Word of God. He's right here. I think this is a great call for us today. For this commandment to rightly worship God, and that right worship of God only comes through Jesus Christ. Y'all hear that? It only comes through Jesus Christ. Which is by the word of God. We are to resist in our hearts for any kind of image, any kind of thought, any kind of imagination, any kind of something, anything that's in creation that would replace what God has so gloriously revealed to us in his word. And again, let us hear the warning. He is a jealous God. But in Christ, he has shown you steadfast love. For those that love him and keep his commandments. And all of God's people say, Amen.